This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Center. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good afternoon, everyone. If you can find your seats so we can get this session started a few minutes late. Thank you very much. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bernard Ross, and I'll be chairing this session today, which has a bit of a tongue-twisting name, so I'm going to read it. Um, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could be reasonably expected to chuck wood, given his education, training, and experience? <clears throat> our present presenters today are Bryce Salance, the our chief pricing actuary, and Pedri LaRue, the head of business development for SCORE Africa. <clears throat> They'll present for 45 minutes, and that'll probably leave us with about 10 minutes for questions now. I think despite the complexity of the title, um, the presentation covers a, a serious issue of how the change in the disability definition after two years in the group risk environment affects both the disability claimants and the industry as a whole. Thank you very much, and thank you, Bryce. So how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could reasonably be expected to chuck wood given his education, training, and experience? Now, apart from being a reminder of seemingly random tongue twisters from our youth, this is actually a very interesting and relevant question in the group risk environment. Consider our woodchuck a 46-year-old sales lady working in the fresh produce department of a small supermarket where she has worked for many years since completing Standard 7 level of education. Now, Woodchuck has unfortunately suffered repeated hernia complaints and as a result is not able to lift heavy packages or stand for long periods of time and her employer has boarded her. She has submitted a claim to the Staff Supermarket Fund under the definition of disability, the inability to perform own or any other occupation for gain or reward to which the life assured could be reasonably suited by education, training, earnings, status, or experience. Now, how much wood do we think our woodchuck can chuck? By a show of hands, how many of you here would admit, i.e. accept, such a claim. Only a few hands going up, and the insurer agreed and declined the claim on the basis that she could reasonably be expected to work in another department of the supermarket, not having to lift heavy packages, or she could even work as a cashier, where she would be able to shift between sitting and standing throughout the day. Now keep this claim in mind for later. Today we look at the situation that's presenting itself in the current group risk income disability environment space with a particular reference to the application of the definition of disability that's used in practice. We will look at some termination analysis and then highlight some relevant industry guidance. We will then look to the results of a survey which we conducted in the industry and conclude with possible solutions. So currently in the group risk environment, an income disability product is sold that makes use of two main definitions of disability. 
The first definition of disability applies in what we call the initial period and is the definition of disability upon which a claim is originally assessed. And this is usually of the form of the inability to perform your own occupation with your own or any employer. Now, after a period of 12 or 24 months, a claim is effectively reassessed under a second definition of disability, under what we call the extended period. And this definition of disability is the inability to perform any reasonably suited alternative occupation, given the member's age, education, training, and experience with any employer. Now clearly there are differences between both of these definitions of disability, and whereas in the first definition, a pricing actuary would be assessed against being able to perform their job as a pricing actuary. But under the second definition of disability, we see the use of a lot more vague terms, and whereas a pricing actuary, they would not necessarily be assessed against being a pricing actuary, but their education, training, and experience would be taken into account, and perhaps there would be other occupations that they could be reasonably expected to follow. Could this be an accountant, a teacher, perhaps a lecturer? A third and final definition of disability is used, which is an any occupation definition, which is the inability to perform any occupation. And in order for an actuary to be assessed and admitted as a claim under such a definition, there would literally not be any other occupation in the South African environment that that person would be able to do. So they would literally only be paid if they could not even perform as a promotional mascot. Now when we look at these definition of disabilities, we try to understand how you would do this in practice. And we look to our F102 notes, and there we describe how we should apply this in practice. And whereas we would regard perhaps an any occupation definition as extremely severe in order to qualify, in practice a more lenient interpretation is often made. And in fact, even though on paper you may have an any occupation definition, this would actually be applied in practice as an own or reasonably suited alternative occupation. So given this, we also see an example that a small hand impairment to the hand of a concert pianist who plays professionally may not allow him to play piano professionally. And if we were assessing this claim under that extended period definition, of the inability to perform own or reasonably suited alternative occupation, would we decline this claim under the basis that we could reasonably expect such a piano player to become a teacher of other piano players? Or would this claim, in fact, continue to be paid? Given this change of definition point, we set out to understand if, in fact, at this pivotal change in definition point, we were in fact terminating more claims than we were in the couple of months before this change of definition. And we conducted a terminations investigation of over 8,600 claims in the South African market to find out what we were seeing in practice. Here we see some of the results of our investigation. And in particular, we analyzed schemes with a 24-month initial period and looked for every 100 claims in force at this change of definition point into the extended period, 
how many would be declined or be deemed capable of returning to work in a suitable alternative occupation. As we can see here, just over two claims per hundred are currently being terminated at this change of definition point. And we can also see that this has been decreasing year on year since 2014, an effective 36% decrease to a level now of only 1.6 claims per 100 in 2018. We also looked to understand how this level of termination rate actually compared to the rate in the, number, in the months preceding this change of definition point. And we found that our rate of two per hundred was actually 60% higher than the number of claims that we were being terminated per hundred in the couple of months before the change of definition was applied. So this clearly shows us that the change of definition is having an impact in terminating claims, and claims are being terminated at this change of definition point, but perhaps not to the level that we would have expected. So we looked to international expertise and other markets to find out how we compared. We first looked to the Australian market that sells similar income disability products with the same definitions of disability. And whereas we were terminating two claims per 100, in Australia they were terminating almost double that at five claims per every 100 in force at this change of definition point. Now there are clearly differences between our two markets, but on a like-for-like -like comparison, whereas we were terminating 60% more claims at our change of definition point, in Australia they were actually terminating more than 200% of that in the couple of months before this change of definition point came into effect. Now clearly Australia isn't exactly the gold standard when it comes to income disability policies with severe losses that they've made over the last couple of years. But on this topic, they are seemingly much more successful in deeming claimants capable of returning to alternative occupations. We then looked wider to the American market where we used the Society of Actuaries latest group long-term disability study report to understand in that market, what type of claims were being terminated. And there we saw that for every 100 claims in force at the change of definition in America, over nine claims were being terminated. Whilst on paper, many of the American policies make reference to an any occupation definition, what we've seen is that in practice, they should be applying this on an any reasonably suited alternative occupation definition. So the results are comparable. And we see that on this change of definition in the South African market, we are deeming far few claimants capable of returning to suitable alternative occupations than these other markets. So with this very low level of terminations that we are seeing in the South African market, we really set to understand why this was the case and look for possible reasons. So first we looked at the actual definition of disability. The inability to perform own or any reasonably suited alternative occupation given the member's age, education, training and experience with any employer. And we wondered how objective this definition of disability actually was and what could be considered reasonable really. 
Clearly, the assessment of what someone's education, training, and experience actually means in terms of their future work capacity is a very subjective matter, which leading to much difficulty for claims assessors and additionally for claimants who do not understand this definition and are fighting many decisions that are made. Now, the application of this definition is not a new problem in the South African market, since it's been in existence for a number of years. But what we believe is that applying it as it was originally intended is becoming more and more difficult over time. So guidance on this matter was also particularly thin, with a lot of the guidance that we saw being issued more than a decade ago. So we looked to some of this guidance to help us understand how we would actually say what a reasonable occupation could be. The then LOA issued some guidelines in terms of what we could consider when promoting suitable alternative occupations. And the most important factor that they cited was age. And in particular, the closer a claimant was towards retirement, for example, older than 58, the less reasonable it would be to expect that person to change jobs into any other suited occupation. And they should really be assessed under an own occupation definition. The second factor was income. And there we found that suggesting an occupation that would lead to a fall in income of more than 25% would be perceived as very unfair. The final factor was the current situation, and in particular, the length of time that the person had been working in their current occupation, coupled with their level of education. So it's noted that a manual laborer who's been working for more than 10 years with less than a grade 12 qualification should not be expected to work in another occupation and they should be assessed under an own occupation definition. ASISA has also issued some guidance on the assessment under different claim causes. And there they note that the assessment of a disability claim is very much a legal decision and not actually a medical one and really must, the actual definition of disability must be taken into account. And this may differ widely between different insurance companies. But overarching, they suggested that we must always adhere to treating customers fairly. The late Professor Christie, who was a consultant for the Ombudsman for long-term life insurance, also issued some guidance on this topic. And there he really asserted that the no general test can be applied. And the question really was whether it was reasonable to expect this assured to pursue this occupation. So it's very much a case-by-case -case individualized decision and no broad brush principles can actually apply. What was also clear is that disability assures against disability and not unemployment. So if an occupation is not available in the market, this is irrelevant unless it goes so far to suggest that the occupation is no more than fanciful. And an example is given that we cannot simply promote or suggest that a claimant take up being a scorer in a JLI game, a game that's not even played in South Africa. So clearly it's easy to understand these examples on the extremes but what about our day-to-day -day practical examples? And how is the guidance helping us with these? Sue Meidel from the Ombudsman Office also issued some further guidance. 
And she particularly noted that if you are declining a claim at this change of definition point, you must assert which occupation you believe that the insured can follow. Now, not only do our claims assessors have to be knowledgeable medical experts, this really means that they need to also be or make use of knowledgeable occupation experts that really understand the true situation of the claimant and their work history and their education, training and experience that comes into what other occupation they may perform. Some examples were given to help us really understand this in practice. For example, if we have a roof carpenter who's not able to climb on roofs, but can still be a carpenter, for example, perform light bench carpentry on ground, then it's not necessarily the case that this claim would be admitted in the extended period where the occupation would be reasonably expected that he could continue as a carpenter doing on-ground carpentry work and the claim wouldn't be accepted, particularly if such occupations were readily available. Less clear was a second example of a janitor who was not able to perform work as a janitor, but could be a security guard. Now, if no such occupations were available in the small town that this claimant actually lives in, is it reasonable for us to expect our claimant to pick up his roots and move himself and his family to another area where such jobs are available? In this report, it suggested that this is not reasonable and such a claim would be paid under the own or reasonably suited alternative definition. Now, this seems to contradict some of the earlier guidance we saw from Professor Christie, who mentioned that we are not covering the non-availability of occupations. But it really looks like the location of the actual claimant is also being taken into account and whether any other reasonable occupation exists within that location. So how many of our woodchucks are taking their fight forward to the Ombudsman? Currently, the Ombudsman issues some stats on a yearly basis, and under the topic of claims being declined under the policy terms and conditions not being met for disability, the Ombudsman has sided with the insurer in 63% of these cases. Now, clearly, these represent all types of disability cases, lump sum, income, retail, group, and it's not clear on this topic how many cases the ombudsman sided with the insurer. But what was clear was that of all the case studies that we found on the ombudsman website, all of them were where the ombudsman favored with the claimant. So with all these difficult dynamics that are playing out in terms of assessing disability uh, cases against the seemingly vague definition of disability, we set out to find out how these dynamics were actually playing out in the South African environment. And we issued a survey to find out, targeted mainly at group insurers working in this field. And we surveyed pricing and product development actuaries and claims assessors and we really aim to find out if claims assessors were finding it more and more difficult to apply a seemingly random definition of disability, and whether our pricing and product development actuaries were aware of all of the subtleties involved in applying this definition in practice, and whether they were pricing for it appropriately. And I now hand over to Piedri to take us through some of those survey findings.
one thing that I realized is that these presenters are like bloody camels. No one drinks water anymore. So it must be a, a new thing. Um, so I'm going to maybe just reach for mine somewhere along the line. Thanks, Bryce. Um, yeah, so I will take us through some of the survey findings, and I'll really try to paint the picture and tell the story around the process involved. I'm going to start off with some of the basics, some of the fundamentals, some of the product features that our claims assessors and case managers have to really hold tight in their back pocket when they're assessing these claims. I'm then going to try, and I'm going to note try, put us in the position of and in the shoes of these claims assessors to see what they actually go through on a daily basis when assessing these claims at the change of definition. And try to highlight some of the inconsistencies that we've observed, some of the difficulties that they encounter, at a stage in the product cycle or the policy cycle that I think is probably a bit more complex than we give, give credit for. So just on some of the basics, uh, so we've asked our respondents your, what is your main initial period definition and just over a third cited that it's an own occupation with own employer, no real surprises for us here. I guess the only surprise here is a bit of the creep of the own occupation with any employer has had over the past couple of years. Uh, I think, obviously, a, a stricter definition from admitting claims from the insurer's point of view. Um, so, basically, these two should be seen, seen in combination. And as Bryce also said, the one actually kind of like morphs into the other one uh, in practice. The length of the initial period, uh, mainly 90% of the respondents said 24 months, which is quite long. I mean, if you're going to sit at home for 24 months, it is going to be a challenge to reintegrate you into the workplace, all things all things equal, um, and the motivation levels are not going to be there. And that, again, begs the question that Bryce said about... <laughs> Sorry. How relevant motivation levels should be um, in assessing claims at the change of definition. Moving on to the extended period definitions, yeah, it's a bit more clear-cut. Own in any reasonably suited occupation, given your education, training, and experience with any employer, took the majority of the vote at 87%. With, I guess, the strictest definition out there in terms of admitting claims with any occupation, with any employer making up, making up the balance. Now, some of these extended period definitions actually mention stuff like self-employment and stuff. Um, I guess that muddies the waters even more, in, introduces more subjectivity. So I, I think we're going to leave that for today and we'll just focus on these basic definitions. The last product feature I just quickly want to highlight uh, that we've maybe forget about sometimes is that of partial benefits. Now, partial benefits effectively is a top-up. So if you are deemed suitable to go into an alternative occupation, but you have to take a pay cut, then the insurance policy will basically pay the top-up so that you're not financially disadvantaged. Now, 90% of our respondents said that their, that their product and their policy makes allowance for partial payments, but only 5 to 10% of claimants actually receive the partial payments. And this is really a tool that I think that we think can, can be used much more effectively. The reason why we think such a low percentage are actually receiving the partial payments is, I think it's that threshold that, that Bryce mentioned, that if your income dips underneath that, then the reasonability gets challenged from a status, from a status point of view. Okay, so I think with that basics in our pockets, then let's turn our attention to the actual claims assessors and the case managers. So what happens at this change of definition? So effectively, the, the claims manager or the claims assessor has to make a call. They have to make a call whether or not they believe this guy is deem, deemed suitable for alternative occupation or whether the claim needs to continue. 
Now, they obviously have to have quite a thorough knowledge of the South African job market, the occupations out there, the duties involved. They have some of these uh, sources of assistance. Uh, they use educational psychologists, internal guidelines, the dictionary of occupational titles. They use all of this, even reinsurers, underwriting manuals now. Some of them consist manuals of um, or modules that, that basically tells you what certain occupations are expected of. However, what this does not capture, I guess, is the claims environment and how stressful that environment is. There's a serious lack of quality assessors in the market. Systems are not conducive to the review process. There's a massive backlog of claims, and they have to make these decisions under extreme pressure and un under extreme stressed conditions. And if they make the call, if they deem someone suitable for alternative occupation, they need to suggest the suitable occupation. So we ask them, in your experience as a claims assessor, what have you seen? And we obviously ask the product and pricing actually, what do you think are suitable alternative occupations? I'm going to highlight a few of them. It just shows you probably the difficulty involved in this, in this process. So basically, actuaries can always become lecturers, apparently. Okay. And this holds for any professional job. So the accountants can always become lecturers and doctors and lawyers, and everyone seems to be able to become lecturers. However, we don't see ex-actuaries, accountants, and lawyers roaming our universities lecturing classes all the time. So it shows you that in reality it's not so easy to apply that change in definition to that, to that uh, occupation. Some are more clear-cut. Um, if you worked in manufacturing on a platinum plant and you developed a platinum allergy, you can go do your job somewhere else. Um, maybe even on that initial period definition with any employer underpin, you can, you can do that from the start. You don't even need to, 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 to the claim doesn't need to even be admitted in the initial period. Underground electricians can become above-ground ele electricians, I guess. Uh, I guess the other pillar is the admin jobs. Everyone always thinks that everyone can do an admin job. Okay. And we're going to see in a, in a few slides' time that it's not so easy to deem someone suitable for an admin job. No one wants to do admin, admin work. Okay. And, and actually, some of the ombudsman feedback on that is that it is not so easy and so reasonable to, to deem that. Okay, so next we've asked our respondents, so what are the main obstacles at the change of definition that you see? And the client's motivation level sits at 40%. Okay, so categorically the most, the most people said that is the, the biggest hurdle to overcome. Obviously, the, the, the length of the initial period, as I mentioned earlier, doesn't help. 24 months is a long time uh, to reintegrate someone into the workplace. Also, the tax change in 2015 doesn't help. People get paid handsomely to sit at home. Um, so, so there's really this whole dilemma around the motivation. And it comes back to what Bryce said earlier. So I guess how relevant is, is the motivation really? However, they wouldn't cite this if it's, not, if it's not an issue. Next is around the claimant's age. And the guidance said 58. But the feedback from the market is actually that this age bracket has crept to 50. So anyone older than 50, 50 or above, it is, it's really difficult to deem them suitable for alternative occupations. And this is a massive problem here. So if you think someone at 50 probably on average has 12 years to retirement where they can contribute to society, where they can contribute to the workforce, where they can get off the insurers and reinsurers payroll, it is a massive issue that we sit with here. 
Next is that length of time in occupation prior disability, and that opens up the whole reskilling debate, what is someone deemed reasonable to be reskilled as. Um, and closely linked to that is the claimant's qualifications. Um, I think this, this works at the, at, the, at the different polls, so at very low levels of education, um, I think grade, grade 12 and below blue-collar workers, it is said in the guidance that own and reasonably suited occupations should actually morph into an own occupation definition. And it's really around the reskilling and the difficulty to reskill those people. And it's a massive problem in South Africa, given that so many of our, of our claimants of our exposure will sit in that blue-collar blue -collar space. But it also holds for high levels of education, where the status gets challenged again. And on the next, on the next slide, I'll show you guys a bit of a, an example of that. The last ones I just quickly want to mention is the lack of existence, existence of alternative occupations, the lack of access to medical treatment, and the availability of alternative occupations. And especially the top two, are, are, or the, the, you know, those that are listed at the top, are very interesting given that only the claims assessors, the guys that work on the ground, the guys that actually see the reality in assessing these claims, cited that as reasons. The pricing and product actually did not did not really cite that as a reason because they probably didn't think that that should even come into play. Now, that's maybe a first little glance or focus on potential disconnects between reality and what the claims assessors are seeing, as well as our pricing and product guys, and, and we, need to, we need to focus on that. Okay, so I mentioned the status thing. So not all the products and policies mention status explicitly. Um, so in the German market, they have an own and reasonably suited definition from the start, from day one, but they have status in there, and they clearly define status objectively as a percentage drop in income. Now, ours is not, not always like this, and it does introduce a lot of subjectivity. So I want to take you to the curious case of the paramedic in South Africa and a bit of a case study. Um, there was this paramedic and he got an injury and he couldn't be a paramedic anymore. So the Health Professionals Council of South Africa terminated his license. Okay. So he couldn't perform a, a paramedic job anymore. Um, his employer wanted to retrench him, but felt like that may be a bit harsh. So they, wanted, they said they will employ him in an admin job. You see the admin job already coming, coming out again. Um, at the same salary that he earned as a paramedic. Okay, so there's no financial knock that this guy took at all. He then went and claimed under his group insurance policy and said it's not reasonable for him to go into an admin job. He stated reasons like the glamour of being a paramedic, the status of being a paramedic, even softer, softer stuff like how much he enjoyed being a paramedic, the excitement factor being uh, attached to a paramedic, um, and then future salary increases, he also, he also cited as potential reasons why it's not reasonable for him to go into an admin job. Now, for us, there's something amiss here. If he thinks it's more glamorous and more status to actually sit at home um, and be on the insurer's payroll rather than go into an admin job at the same pay um, um, that he, than he had before. Now, this case actually then went to the ombudsman and the ombudsman sided, sided with, with a claimant saying that it is not reasonable to expect this guy to go into an admin, admin job. 
okay, so where does the pressure come from? So we asked our respondents, where do you get the pressure from? And there's actually quite a lot of direct pressure from the claimant, as we saw in the paramedic side. He actually fought the battle. In a group risk environment, this was quite a bit surprising for, for us, given that we thought there would be more maybe intermediary pressure or employer pressure, et cetera, but it's actually coming from the, from the direct claimant. Um, and the reputational and public pressure and the increased pressure from the ombudsman um, actually is, is creeping, creeping up a bit. So how successful are we actually at terminating claims? Okay, so we asked people at this, at this change of definition, if you have 100 claims, how many do you think will terminate? And this was the responses. So, for example, just over 25% said that between 21 and 30 claims will terminate as a result of the change in definition. Now, keep that picture in your, in your mind. We're going to average that out in a bit. Um, if you recall, Bryce said that it's actually towards the actual termination scene, or actually towards the lower end of that bracket. So, I think 2018 was around 1.6. And if you average this out and put the actual, the actual and the perception on one graph, this is actually what, what we see. Um, so people think 33 claims will be, will be uh, terminated. In reality, we see 1.6. And the 33 is probably driven up a lot by the, maybe some of the, the guys that's not actually assessing the claims, maybe the pricing and the product guys that think it should have a, a, a much bigger impact. Now, we're not saying that we're pricing at 33. I think if we priced at 33, we probably would have a product that was, was quite cheap compared to, I think, what, what we're seeing currently. But we're also not pricing at 1.6, I don't think. So there's this disconnect, again, that I want to highlight between potentially the claims guys and seeing this, this stuff on the ground and what's happening in the pricing and product areas. Okay, so... Back to our woodchuck on Smarmot. Um, so if you can remember, it was this 46-year-old sales lady that had repeated hernia complaints and couldn't lift heavy things anymore. She had a standard seven level of education, if I recall. And basically, we asked our respondents who of you would terminate this claim. And I think consistent with the view that, that we had in this audience earlier, uh, we saw that over 60% said they would terminate this claim. Now, what's interesting is what happens between the claims and the pricing and product guys, and again, we see a clear difference in opinion on who actually thinks this should be terminated. For the pricing and product actuaries, it was basically a no-brainer. The claims guys obviously see some of the more difficulties involved in a case like this, and they had a, had a lesser percentage. So now we ask them, okay, you have, you have now declined this claim or terminated this claim, so what can this lady go and do? And that was kind of like what they said. So there's a lot of seated job. Now apparently, if you have a hernia, then it's not nicely conducive to sitting actually. So a lot of them actually said cashier where she can stand and sit intermittently in the day and manage her, manage her pain. Um, and this case actually went to the ombudsman as well after the insurer um, declined it, and the ombudsman sided with the claimant as well, saying that even she only had a standard seven level of education, um, she, she's not 
doesn't have the intellectual capacity and capability to become a to, to be a cashier. And again, this just highlights, I guess, the inconsistencies that we observe between internal practices within insurers and external stakeholders like the like the ombudsman. And we need to, I guess, fix these inconsistencies sooner rather than later, for the sake of sustainability of our products, for the sake of the validity of our actuarial assumptions, and for the sake of treating all our customers customers fairly. Um, and who knows, maybe we can breach this gap and maybe it is some one day reasonable for uh, actually to become a lecturer and everyone's happy with that. Or maybe at a bit of a stretch, it's actually a uh, top order batsman of the Proteas is deemed capable of scoring some bloody runs. So, um, <laughs> so I'm going to hand over back to Bryce now. He's going to take us through our last woodchuck and then just finish off us. Thanks, Pedri. So we included a second case study in our survey, our 40-year-old bus driver, who unfortunately suffered a gunshot wound to his left leg and as a result had his leg amputated above the knee. But he was fitted with a prosthesis, which he currently wears. Now his employer boarded him because he was not able to drive buses any longer. And we look, if we looked at the claimant's history in terms of occupation, he first started out as a handyman and then became a machine operator, then getting a, bus a, a truck driver's license and working as a truck driver for many years. And then he received a bus driver's license where he's worked for the past five years. Now the claimant put through a disability claim to the insurance policy with the definition of the inability to perform own or any other suited occupation for which he is or could reasonably be expected to become qualified by his knowledge, training, education, ability, and experience. So we ask our survey respondents how many would decline this claim on this definition. And about 56% of our respondents said that they would decline this claim, largely driven by our claims assessors, where over 60% said they would decline this claim whereas with the Pricing and Product Development Actuaries, it was a bit of a 50-50. We then asked our respondents if they had declined this claim, what other reasonable, suitable alternative occupations they would propose. What was clear was that many mentioned that this claimant was young and not incapable of working. Since he still had full use of his right leg, he could still continue to work as a driver, but perhaps of automatic vehicles, so he could become an automatic taxi driver. Others suggested looking to his prior work history, and perhaps he could become a machine operator or gain a handyman because he had fully function of his both of his legs while wearing his prosthesis. Now, our claimant received the news from the insurer that his claim was declined on this basis, but he was not happy and he proceeded to the ombudsman for review. Now the ombudsman asserted that although training is envisaged by the definition, the training is meant to put the claimant in a position that would be very similar to his current position or at a higher status than his current position and not as a lower one. And where we saw our claimant had changed occupations throughout his working career, the ombudsman said that it wasn't reasonable for him to effectively go back in time and work in an occupation that he'd left many years ago. So they finally decided to agree with the claimant. 
Now, if our claimant had wanted to continue working, even, for example, as a handyman, that top-up benefit, that partial payment, may come into play, and he could have continued working as a handyman and received that top-up to put him to the same salary level as he would have before he claimed. We've also seen many global studies that suggest that overall working is good for your health and gives you a sense of purpose. So overall, not working for claimants might be to the overall detriment of these people. So I asked myself, if I was disabled, would I rather stay at home receiving a full income disability benefit, often coupled with guaranteed CPI-related annual increases, or would I want to go and work in a completely unrelated field and look for that partial top-up benefit? So what about our bus driver? He chose to stay at home receiving his full income disability benefit. Now with all the challenges we see in applying this definition, what are some of the solutions that we could look for? One thing is clear is that if we currently do absolutely nothing and don't change our definitions or how we are applying these in practice, we really need to make sure that our pricing bases are appropriately capturing this emerging experience. Even for fully credible group risk schemes, the reserve component is still an important part of an active claimant's value. So getting the termination basis right is really important for pricing. So if you and your company haven't conducted an experience analysis for terminations in a number of years, there's no time like now to get started. When we look at the actual definition of disability, are there perhaps other types of definitions that we could lean towards rather than having this occupationally vague decision, definition? In the UK, a similar definition exists as an underpin to many CI policies. And many years ago, the ABI was concerned that this definition was very unobjective and difficult for policyholders to understand. So they issued a working party of insurers and reinsurers to come up with more comprehensive types of, types of definitions that could be applied. Ultimately, many clinical-based definitions were put forward, but when these were back-tested on a number of claims, what actually seemed to happen was that many of the claims that were previously admitted would not have been admitted under these clinical definitions, and many of the claims that had been declined would actually have been admitted under this definition. So it was clear that the clinical nature of these definitions wasn't really capturing that occupational underpin. And perhaps we could look to extend on this to try and find a balance between a clinical-based decision that somehow does capture the occupational-based nature of our work. In the South African market, functional impairment products do exist, but they're not very popular and almost on the other side of the spectrum in terms of having very restrictive definitions in order to qualify. Perhaps we could look at these in more detail and try and flesh out more comprehensive type of definitions, and this product could become more popular than it currently is. We also posed this as a question in our survey to ask respondents what they believed other solutions could be. Some suggested that since we are already at such a low level of claims being deemed terminated at this change of definition point, that we actually scrap this completely and just have an own throughout definition. Clearly this could lead to a lot more claims being paid and ultimately a much more expensive product. 
Another suggestion is that we bring forward the definition used in the extended period and rather apply this up front in the initial period. And this is the same as products that are found in the German market that are being operated very successfully. And the theory behind this is that people haven't got almost 24 months being used to getting paid a disability benefit and are less likely to challenge the definition of disability change because it is being done up front where they haven't received any benefit so far. When we look to the actual motivation of the claimants and try and tackle it from this angle to really try and encourage much more claimants to return to work, we wondered whether our replacement ratios in the group risk environment were too high and we should actually look at more carefully managed replacement ratios to try and increase the incentive for claimants to return to work. This coupled with high escalation options, almost as much as a CPI guaranteed increase per year, and perhaps we could look at the extent of the escalation options that are offered in practice. Other suggestions were that perhaps we could move the initial period shorter, so for example only have a six-month initial period and then apply that change of definition. And the thought behind this, again, is that the claimant perhaps would have less time to actually get used to receiving the, the benefit and it would be easier to try and motivate him to find employment in alternative occupations. Other suggestions included that we actually limit the claim payment period for certain claim causes. We've seen particularly that, most, that psychological claims are really long-term in nature, and perhaps up front our definition could state that it would only be paid for a certain number of years. But it was also noted that a first mover would be very much disadvantaged in this context. Another interesting suggestion was the thought of the employer's role in the situation, and we very often see that employers very quickly deem their employees boarded and do not want them to work anymore. So perhaps we could look to some sort of employer-type benefit that actually incentivizes the employer to retain that staff member, and that income can be used to help with a work swap or perhaps hire a contractor to help out in, in places where that employee is not able to function as effectively. In conclusion, we've seen how on paper and any occupation definition is actually being applied as an own or reasonably suited alternative occupation. And what we're po possibly in danger of without realizing it or pricing for it is that our own or reasonably suited alternative occupation definition is actually being applied in practice as an own occupation definition. We've seen how really difficult it is to suggest suitable alternative occupations with many factors having been taken into account from the age, education, training, experience, status, and even location of the claimant being important factors to be considered. Our claims assessors are finding it more and more difficult to assess these claims at the change of definition point and the claimants themselves are regularly challenging our assessors' decisions. We also saw how there's a drop year on year of the number of claims being terminated at this change of definition point. And it's really important that if nothing else is done, that our pricing bases appropriately reflect this emerging experience. We hope today that we were able to highlight an important industry issue 
so that we could work together to look for solutions. Because if we want to carry on paying our pianists with small hand impairments after the extended period definition, we need to make sure that our policies are appropriately priced for this. And this may lead to us selling a product that is too elite and unaffordable in the market. If we wish to terminate such claims at the change of definition point, we need to make sure that our policy conditions are clear, fair, and not open to misrepresentation. We would also like to see far more claimants returning to work, even in completely unrelated fields, with far more receiving that top-up partial benefit than we do see in practice. Because in the end, we want the answer to our question to be, so much wood, would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Thank you, Bryce and Pedri. Um, I'll kick off with a very high-level question and then look to the audience for further questions. I see quite a few people from the group risk space, so I'm looking forward to some insightful questions, although I'm not sure my colleagues are looking for, for, forward to such difficult questions. Um, so how concerned, I mean, you've, you've, you've painted a, a, a picture of a problem in the industry, I guess. So I guess, is how concerned are you about the sustainability of the PHI product? And what would you suggest that the profession should do to ensure that it continues to meet um, the employee's disability needs? So, hello. So I think yeah, the sustainability is a, is a difficult one. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're in, in crisis time. I think if we don't address stuff, then, then it will become unsustainable. And I think we need to have this message clearly, not just, not just internally and the technical aspects of the products on the pricing basis and the replacement ratios, how we manage that. And I mean, aggregation, I think we can handle much better. Um, there's obviously challenges there as well, but also engaging more with the external stakeholders like the, like the ombudsman, just to understand the, the train of thought here, um, there's obviously a clear disconnect between some of the claims that insurers thought should be terminated and, and that, uh, that the ombudsman rule against. Now, if it's moving in that direction, I mean, it's fine, but we, we kind of like need, to, need to know about it and, and, and price, I guess, uh, uh, accordingly. So, yeah, so I think if, if all these things continue, Bennett, um, we might be heading for, for, for a lead-type product that we obviously don't want, given that uh, the need of this product is, is very much needed out there. Yeah, I just think from my perspective, it's important to understand what need you're meeting by a product. And my fear is that from a lot of our case studies that we've seen, a lot of the individuals that are currently receiving full disability benefits are not incapable of working. And I would like to see more of them returning to work and being successfully reintegrated into the environment than what we're currently seeing, because a lot of these claims will be long-term in nature and effectively will never return to work. And it's these type of claims that it's making the product more expensive than it perhaps should be. And I think most importantly, for claims assessors in terms of their 
work to apply a definition, even though you know you have a definition on paper, what's actually happening in practice is very different. And I think the number one thing for companies to really, really work on is that collaboration between the departments, between your pricing and product actuaries and your claims assessors to really make sure that you understand what you've priced and put as your product is actually what's happening in, in practice. And I think from what we've seen, there's often very much a siloed approach when it comes to that. Questions from the audience? Hello. Thanks, um, that was quite interesting. Um, Bryce, just quickly on the termination analysis, um, just, just two quick questions. Um, did you have actual reason for termination at 24 months, so saying cannot meet um, any ARC definition? And then did you control for the underlying mix of business? I'm assuming something like um, industry would play a big role um, in those numbers we saw. So unfortunately, we didn't have the claim cause um, reason in terms of the termination. So the termination that we showed there would be a combination of deaths, people returning to work, and the application of this change of definition. But that, as I shared, we tried to contrast this to the termination rate in the couple of months before to show what impact that effect of the, that definition um, would have. Um, and unfortunately, we weren't able to standardize given the level um, of, of our data. So that was very much based on all, all different types of, of schemes in the portfolio. Any other questions out there? So I found the case study on the paramedic really quite interesting. And the fact that he got an offer to go back um, to work in Atman, but then given you're spending between seven and 10 hours a day at work, and if you're fundamentally unhappy with what you're doing, the potential mental impact that that could have on you, is it really then fair to expect him to go back in a job that he might hate, even if he could still have his same earnings potential? And then also, I think, it is good to have purpose and go back to work, but then if you have to go to a job at a reduced capacity, like you say, you have, your job is not just a function of your abilities, but your likes and dislikes, your biases, your perception of your job. So how do we account for all of that and still treat customers fairly based on yeah, this vague definition of what might make you happy or unhappy of what you might deem as an appropriate job? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess you have, to, you have to weigh that up to how happy or unhappy it would make you to, to sit at home as well. Um, I guess there's challenges, challenges involved there. Um, I guess the, yeah, challenging you on a... On a Mental, mental case is, is, is going to be, and I, don't, I wouldn't want to be unhappy in my work seven to eight, but I do think the fact that his employer made a concession should tell him something about, the, about his work environment in that case. It's one, it's one case, it's an isolated case, um, and yeah, I, 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 we just personally thought it was, it was, a, it was a strange case. Time for one more question at the back. Hi, thank you for the very interesting presentation. Um, I just have a question on how this is actually um, done in practice in terms of when you actually um, do the assessment on the alternative occupation. 
um, and whether there's then a transition period from that 24 months, for example, initial period to the period where this person must now do something else. So currently the initial period is set in the policy and when a policy is admitted, the claimant is explained the situation in terms of in a certain number of months that the definition will change and they would be reassessed against that definition. So most of it the insurers do make that commitment with the claimant to help them understand how that changes in practice because as we've seen it is quite a complicated issue to explain. And the thought is then that the claimant can start getting themselves ready um, to move into another alternative occupation. But when that time comes, they've obviously been alerted very early on to it. And often a lot of rehab is done by insurers to try and rehabilitate that claimant so that they can start working. But once that change of definition point happens, and if that claimant is deemed capable of working in an alternative occupation, the, the, the claim will stop being paid from that point, and that the claimant must go and find that occupation themselves. So the insurer doesn't wait for them to be employed and, and actually doesn't assist with getting employment, which is one of the things that other markets have been looking at, whether we should start trying to help claimants, for example, giving them CV training, interview skill training, um, in terms of actually just equipping that claimant more appropriately to go out and actually find a job without just cutting them off, off completely. But I just quickly want to add to that, and I think it's, it's worth emphasizing here. Um, I mean, that whole managing expectations within the 24 months, and sometimes the, the engagement with the customer in the group risk space is kind of like put a bit on the back burner, given that you know, it's not really direct, it's your policy, but it's not like you went out and, and bought it. And that engagement is extremely important, managing that expectation. I think, as Bryce said, it, you may actually get a few more t willing takers to be rehabilitated once they know they've got X amount of time um, and we're going to take a strict stance on, on when, when that change of definition, definition comes. So I do think it's um, just managing that expectation throughout is, is, is critical. If you're going to go come at month 23 and then you're going to say, listen, guy, next, next month you're off, I don't think that's going to be taken off. So. Thank you very much, um, Bryce and Pedri. I think not just for the presentation, but also for raising awareness to an issue which the, the industry and the profession is grappling with. Uh, and we trust there'll be further interactions with the ombudsman and, and discussions in terms of how we can ensure the sustainability of this product for all employees and not just the, the elite few. Um, thank you very much to the audience, and if you can thank the presenters again in the usual way.